Um, if you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 5, because we're going to be in John chapter 5 again in our series on the Gospel of John. We're at a really interesting point in this Gospel, because as we said last week, Jesus had just healed a man on the Sabbath, and he did it in Jerusalem, and there were all of these religious leaders that were there, and the religious leaders uh, were very, uh, they were watching what Jesus was doing very closely because anytime a religious person comes in who believes the same things that you do, uh, and then they start doing things that are very miraculous and show that they have authority, you're going to pay attention if you're a religious leader because you want to know, are they, are they true? Is this real or is this not real? Is this person like a false prophet or something like that? And so as, uh, as these Pharisees, ultimately, these religious leaders in the church start watching Jesus closely. They notice that he's violating some of these laws that they feel like they have on the Sabbath and how he heals this man. And so we're going to start in verse 16 of John 5. We're going to go back to where we ended last time because there's something that it says here that kind of sets up what we're going to be in this morning. And that is not it. That is a picture of a mountain. That's so weird. Okay, that, well try to find my slides, I guess. And in the meantime, we'll look at a picture of a mountain. Let's just pretend that Jesus was standing there and he's in like a cave of wonders or something. And uh, what he says to them is this. If you have a Bible, you can just read it. I'll read it off my notes here. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So uh, what we read about right here is that they are accusing Jesus of blasphemy because he said, hey, listen, whatever the father does, that's the thing that I'm going to do as well because I'm just like him. And, uh, and they say, are you saying you're like God? And, and they accuse him of blasphemy for this. Uh, and ultimately, I'm getting a thumbs up in the back, a very clear thumbs up, but I'm guessing you guys can see, right? Is there a mountain still? No. Is it words? Are they the words I'm talking about? All right, that's the three questions that get us where we need to be. Basically, these Pharisees have decided that they want to kill Jesus. They want to sentence him to death. Now, this happens a lot earlier in the gospel than a lot of people think. A lot of people think, yeah, it's, he gets crucified eventually, but that's at the end, right? That's when they decide they're going to kill him. They decide that way beforehand. They decide it this early on when they begin to see that what he's teaching doesn't seem to be the same as what they care about perpetuating it in the church, the values that they have. And so they already plan on this, and they, and they start talking to him about it right then, and they essentially begin to put Jesus on trial. They essentially begin to accuse him of things, and Jesus begins to give them a defense. This passage that we're looking at this morning is the defense of Jesus. And Jesus basically chooses to offer his own defense rather than let someone else speak on his behalf for him. I am extremely familiar with defenses because I have kids, and all kids do is defend themselves all the time. And I'm not talking physically. They do physically defend themselves. I'm talking like they are constantly saying, I, I didn't do it. I wasn't wrong. It wasn't my fault all the time. Before I had kids, I would hear kids screaming, and I thought they were getting hurt. 
And then I had kids and was like, nope, that's just normal. They scream all the time. But then there's a kind of screaming that's like, okay, now somebody's hurt, right? So you're like, okay, fine. I got to like go deal with, you know, see who's hurt, right? So I, I go, I go, and here, here my kids are. They're both, they're both screaming, right? One of them, it, either two, there's either two things that I will find. Either one of them is crying and the other one is immediately offering a defense. Like I've asked no questions. They're just, I didn't do, that wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. Something fell out of the sky. I don't know where it went. I think it melted. It was hail, who knows, but it wasn't me. And, uh, and so either I'm going to get a defense. And if I say, what happened? This happened to me like two days ago. What happened, right? I, li- I, I just want to know what happened. I have no idea what is going on. All I'm hearing is screaming. And my son, who was the perpetrator, said, all he, I, didn't, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It wasn't, I didn't do it on purpose. It, it wasn't my fault. It was her fault. It wasn't, I, I want to know what happened. Just tell me what happened. Like, all he could say is, like, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Right? Uh, not a great defense. Right? Uh, my, the other option is you see that the kid is crying, and so you start crying. Because if both kids are crying, then he won't know what happened, right? We've both been hurt. Oh, it was unfortunate, but we've both been hurt. So I think we can all agree to just let this one go. You know, it's just what happens in life. Everyone's crying and everyone will feel better at the end, right? But here's the thing. Kids cry at least once a day. I mean, if adults cried as much as kids, it would be chaos, right? They just cry at least once a day, and I'm being very, you know, I'm, 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 I'm rounding down here, okay? Cry at least once a day. You would think for somebody who cries so much, they would know how to cry, they would know how to fake cry pretty convincingly, but they don't, right? They don't know how to fake cry at all. So, so basically, it's easy. If there's tears coming out of their eyes, that's the one that got hurt. The one that's just kind of screaming and looking around to see like if they're going to win the Oscar for it or whatever, that one clearly is the one that hurt them, right? And so again, I asked them for their defense, terrible defense, horrible defense. They are no good at it at all. Mostly all it is, is just, I didn't do it. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. I spent all my time basically like a judge trying to figure out what happened in a situation and trying to offer out punishments. So I know about this very well. Uh, I was talking to somebody after the first service who was like, you know, it's easy when you talk about kids because adults are the same as kids. We just were more subtle. We hide things better, things like that. I was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a very defensive person. I don't often come to my own defense and defend myself, right? I'm sure none of you do as well, right? That's just a thing that little tiny kids do because we all know better. No, we all do it constantly. And as these guys come and they attack Jesus, He's like that character in a courtroom movie or something who is like, I'm going to defend myself. And everyone is like, no, that's a bad idea. Just let someone else take, take care. They're a professional. You should not be, you know, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to come to my own defense. I'm going to defend myself. I want to be my own lawyer. And then like every time they open their mouth, they're like, oh no. Everyone's like, this is, this is only getting worse, right? By the things that this person's saying. And that's basically how we see this go. As Jesus begins, we're going to see that he's going to use this statement again and again. And it's truly, truly, I say to you. He's going to say it three times in this passage. And when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly is a way of saying amen, right? It's true, right? It's true, and I've seen it, okay? Why do people say amen in sermons? Because they agree with the point being made. They're like, that is so 
true, and man, have I seen it in my life. I was speaking at, um, at Rebecca Shea's memorial service yesterday, and um, it was an awesome service. It was like a total celebration of her life, and as I was talking, I was talking about, um, it, it fit in the context, believe me. I was talking about pizza, and I was saying that um, we live in a world in which it's very sad that the last piece of pizza never tastes as good as the first piece of pizza. I've talked about this before, church. And I said, oh, to live in a world where the last piece of pizza tastes as good as the first piece of pizza, right? That's like an amen moment. That's when you guys should be saying amen, right? I mean, like high schoolers here and stuff, right? Let's try this. Oh, to live in a world where the last piece of pizza was as good as the first piece of pizza? Amen. amen. Yeah, that was still pretty sad, but whatever, right? It's the only thing keeping all of us from weighing like 700 pounds is that the last piece of pizza doesn't taste as good as the first piece of pizza, right? Because the only reason you stop eating. Eventually, you're like, oh, okay, fine. It was easy. Right. I've eaten it on the way home before. Like, I'm like dri- driving home with the family pizza. I'm like, they're going to kill me. Ellie's going to be so mad, but I'm going to eat a piece of pizza right now because people drive slow in Oregon, and I'm gonna, it's going to be a while until I get home. I drive slow, too. That's what I was saying. We, we say, somebody said amen. That's a good amen right there. We say amen. We say truly, truly. We say it when we know something is true and we've experienced it. Jesus says it. And when he says this phrase, truly, truly, he means something very specific. He means this is true whether you believe it or not. Even if you don't believe it, it's true. He's saying these statements that he makes, they're true. They're real. Even if none of you believe it, Right? Because it, when he speaks, it's with authority. And what that means is that even if nobody agrees with what he says, doesn't mean that it's not true. Now, we see that in, uh, in the Old Testament when prophets would be told to go tell the people something of God. They, they would be given a message. You think if you're like Jeremiah, a prophet. I mean, he's got his own book of the Bible. This guy's a big deal, right? I'd love to be Jeremiah. That'd be pretty, pretty cool, right? God comes to you when you're young, when you're a teenager, says, I have a plan for you. It's a plan to prosper you. I have a purpose for you. And Jeremiah, I want you to go, and I want you to reach my people with my message. Whoa, literally like the most incredibly meaningful life that you've just been given by God to go and do something in his name. Fast forward, zero people believe anything Jeremiah says, and then that's it, the end, right? Okay, that's not so great, right? He's saying things to people, it's true. These things are true. If you don't repent, you're going to perish. Your enemies are going to come in and take over your land. Please believe me, Israelites. Please believe me. No one believes him, not a single person, And then their enemies come in and do exactly what God said. It was true, even though not a single person believed it. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, and this used to be hard for us to believe. It's not hard for us to believe anymore. We used to live in a postmodern culture, and a postmodern culture was a culture in which we would say, listen, that's fine if you believe that, that's fine. I don't want to argue with you. It's fine. But you, that, can be, that can be true for you. Yes, that makes sense. That's fine. That's true for you. But something else is true for me, right? Truth is kind of relative. Because I'm not in your shoes. You're not in my shoes. You come from such a different place than me. We've lived in different circumstances. And I've spent my whole life hearing this is true. That's true. And I'm not sure if any of that stuff's true anymore. And every couple of years, we learn something that undoes all the other stuff we learned before that in science. And so, you know what? Who knows what's true? Who cares about truth? You can 
just, it's fine. It's, it's, that's good for you. Just do me a favor. Don't infringe on me, okay? Like, you believe what you're going to believe. I'll believe what I'm going to believe. Let's just not feel like there has to be any kind of overlap. Well, we don't live in that world anymore. And the reason we don't live in that world anymore is because everybody figured out pretty quickly there's a lot of overlap between all of us, right? You can't really believe something, and I believe something totally different, and it doesn't affect me. It totally affects me. Where is this most evident? Of course it's most evident in politics because that's groups of people getting together saying, I win this time, no, I win this time, right? And if my group's bigger, then theoretically I win. And if my group's bigger, then theoretically I win, right? So all of a sudden, what you mean does matter, right? What you believe does matter. And you know what? We live in a society now in which we believe things so strongly and we also don't place quite quite a high value on convincing other people to believe what we believe, on explaining it to other people. So we live in a society in which I believe what I believe is true. I know that it's true. I know it's true. I'm convinced that it's true. And I don't care what you believe, but you need to deal with what I believe. The world needs to reflect what I believe because I don't want to live in a world where we do what you believe, where we believe what you believe. I don't even want to support you. I don't want to, I don't want to like, I don't want to in any way run the risk of like furthering what you believe because it's different than what I believe. That's how strongly we feel about things. Now, I'll give you guys an example. A couple of months ago, maybe like a year ago, the, the CEO of Twitter ate at Chick-fil-A during Gay Pride Month. And he, and he, and he posted something about that online. Uh, like having fun at Chick-fil-A, having my meal at Chick-fil-A, eating at Chick-fil-A, whatever. And people just like went crazy. And they were like, how could you eat at this place at Chick-fil-A? Because Chick-fil-A had come out and said as a company or, or the owners of the company, I believe, said, you know, we believe marriage is between a man and a woman and that's it. And so it's, it's, it's like people flipped out. And they said, how could you possibly eat at this restaurant supported by, run by these people, profiting them in a month that is all about supporting gay pride? And he was so like sort of like attacked for that that he, he came out like later that day, maybe the next day and said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have eaten there. It was a mistake and it was wrong to do that. You guys are right, okay? Now you might hear that and you might go, that's ridiculous to say that I won't even support something or go somewhere just because they don't believe what I believe and agree with me. I would never do that. That's unreasonable, that's irrational, that's crazy. I would be much more tolerant than that, right? Exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, I see other people, people who have followed a team, an NFL team, for their entire life. And to say religiously is to put it lightly, okay? Because it's more than religiously. It is part of their identity, it is part of their family tradition and heritage. I have seen people on YouTube burning all of their stuff, their jerseys, everything. And why do they burn it? Because the owner of their team decided that the position on the NFL national anthem controversy was not one that they agreed with. I can't even support this team because of what their, the ownership or the NFL or whatever people's position is on something. Because I'm not going to support that thing because I will not live in a world where that happens, where people feel like they can do that. We've, we feel this way now. You don't even waste your time telling me that what you believe is right for you, what I believe is right for me. We don't live in that world anymore. We haven't lived in that world in a long time. What I believe is right, and it's true, and it affects my life, and I don't want what you believe 
bleeding into what I believe and affecting my life. Truly, truly, it is true, even if you don't believe it. Even if you don't believe it. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is true. The Bible uses the word amen. Someone says, I agree with it. No matter how hard this may be for you to accept, what I am saying to you is real. Jesus is saying this to the religious leaders because he knows that what he's saying to them needs to carry a lot of weight, and he knows that they won't agree with it. And he's saying, honestly, even if none of you agree with this, it's still going to happen, and you should listen to it. So he goes on and he says this as his first line of defense. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus is saying here, uh, this is an example in which I think if I was one of the disciples, one of the people on his side with Jesus watching him, I would just go, oh man, he's just making things worse. Because Jesus, his first line of defense, these guys are accusing him of blasphemy. They're saying, you, you said some things about you and God. You called him your father. You called God your father. That is blasphemy. It's like you think you're God. Jesus is like, well, let me clear it up for you. And then he says, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. What does that mean? That means literally everything that I do, everything that I am doing, God is doing. I am God. Everything I'm doing is something that God is doing. There's not a single thing that I'm going to say that I'm going to do that is not coming from God himself, the creator of the universe, your God, who you consider to be so holy that you don't even say his name fully in the Jewish tradition. That God, yeah, it's me. I'm doing, everything I'm doing is exactly what he would do. I mean, who can say something like that? This, is, this defense is not going well. He's not probably winning them over by convincing them that he's a reasonable guy. He's instead showing them that he means exactly what they were afraid that he means. He means that he himself is God. I am not a teacher. I am not just a pastor, a rabbi. I'm not just a spiritual figure. I'm not just someone who taught us valuable things over the history of, the, of our time, whose teachings will live on long into the future after my death and people will remember me. I am not insane. I'm not a liar. I am speaking because I've been sent by God and he has given me complete authority. To say this is to say I have total authority from God. Everything I say, everything I do, it's God. It carries that much weight. This word authority is a Greek word exousia, which is like to exercise authority, to, to carry out authority right? And it's the ability to rule, the right to control something. It's like you have a geographic region, you put someone in charge, you say, you're in charge of it, you have authority. This doesn't just mean that I talk with lots of knowledge or that I know about the Bible. It's what Jesus is saying. Because he knew everything about the scripture, he knew everything about the Jewish faith. It means that I've been given the right to rule over all of you. Why does he have that right? Well, the right is rooted in creation. It's in John 1, where he basically is saying, I 
created you. I created all of you. I created everyone. I created this earth. I created this planet. I created each and every one of you. And you, I have authority over you as your creator. Now, we would like to think that we like the idea of authority. But we don't, right? None of us do. Uh, we say kids don't like it, adults figure it out. No one likes this kind of authority in their life, I don't think. I don't, I don't think anybody likes the idea of having authority in their life. It, think about it this way, right? Uh, if you live in this country, in America, our country, we have a tremendous amount of respect for the Constitution. We believe in what it says, and we continually appeal to the Constitution when we talk about how to govern. Whenever we have a disagreement over something important, what do we do? We say, well, if we're talking about America, then we say, how does the Constitution say that we should deal with this thing? We get in a lot of conflict over this because we say, well, how did the founding fathers intend for things to run? Because that's how we want things to run. How does this stuff play out in today's day and age? New things come up all the time. The world's always changing. So the question is, what does the Constitution say about that? How do we make sure that as Americans, that we are solving this problem, that we're figuring it out the way that we were supposed to in the beginning, because what has authority to us is the founding fathers and the Constitution. If you live in this country, if you grew up in this country, you believe in these ideas, liberty, freedom, justice, and equality, that they're all things that should never be taken away. Something without which we could not be what we are meant to be. If I lose these things, if we as a country lose these things, we cannot be who we are intended to be, who we're meant to be, who we set out to be. And so for this reason, you don't get to be a part of government unless you agree to support the Constitution, to, to defend it, to, to try to understand it better, to do things according to it. Now imagine that someone came in, an invading force came into our country and by force took it over. And now the people with authority, by force, were not the people who began this country. We're not the people who agreed to support the Constitution. They threw it out. They said, no more of that. We're going to govern by a completely different set of rules and values and systems. And now we're the authority in your life. And even if you had no ability whatsoever to fight them, no ability whatsoever to rebel against them, would you submit to that authority? Would you want to submit to that authority? No. Why? Because they're an invading force. They're something that came in from the outside and forced their authority upon you. And even though there was nothing you could do to change how much power they had and the fact that they could take your life if they want to, deep inside your heart you would go, but these aren't really the ones that I should be following because they don't actually govern and care out of the place that I think they should. This is exactly how we treat the idea of the authority that Jesus is talking about so often. When he says, I have absolute authority, truly, truly, everything I am doing is from God, which means as the creator of you and everything else, I speak to you as the one who started you, who made you, and all of this around you. We treat him not like a founding father, not like someone who knows exactly what is meant to be, but we treat him like an invading force that has come into our autonomy, into our life, into our freedom, and said, now I'm going to dictate how you live, and we go, ugh, ugh. <sighs> That doesn't sound very fun. And we see this kind of authority that Jesus is talking about as something that we would rather just do without. We don't dislike him. We don't want to get rid of him completely by any means. 
but we also are not really ready, most people, to give him the kind of authority in our life that he says he should have as our creator. When he says to do something, he says it as the author of you. When he says to live a certain way, he's saying that because that, to live any other way is death. If you don't believe that, then you will rebel, and ultimately you'll only listen to the things that support what you already agree with. What it looks like to rebel against the authority of Jesus within the church is simple. You agree with the things that line up with what you agree with. You, you, you learn from and seek out and want to know more knowledge and be more knowledgeable and work more on the things that already are values to you, and you are willing to and totally fine with disregarding all the stuff that just doesn't line up with, with what you want, right? But he says, I'm the source. My rules and my teachings are life itself. Without them, you will not experience life. If you break these, they will break you, he says. This is the, the part of Jesus' teaching of the things that he says and the way he lives that is the, isn't it better this way anyway aspect of what he teaches. I mean, ultimately, if someone does this, if people live this way, wouldn't it be better for the world anyway? Yes. How do we know that? Because he's like, I made the world. I know how it's supposed to operate. Even if it doesn't feel right today in this moment, it's better. Paul says this in the New Testament. He says in Romans, like, he says, listen, does the potter, um, does the clay have any right to say to the potter who's making something out of it, here's how you should make me. Here's what you should make me into. Here's how you should make me work and what you should give me to do in my life. Because that's essentially what it's like if we say to, to Jesus or to God, like, no, 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 here's how it should be. Here's how I should be. Here's what should be important. We're basically saying to the creator, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're making me for. Let me decide on my own. And our response to this most of the time is to rebel against it. We're repelled by absolute authority because we desperately want the ability to pick and choose. I think we all want this. I think most of us want this. I've never met someone who hates or disagrees with everything they read in the Bible. Some agree with the instruction. Some agree with the poetry. Some agree with the mere idea of it. Some with the watered-down encouragement they find in it. Some people really like the rules. They really like being right. Some people really like the idea, the ability to say, God made us, so respect me, I'm valuable, but maybe not so much you're valuable. I've never met someone who naturally agrees with everything they read in the Bible, not really, not someone who's honest and self-aware. I've never met someone who reads every single, every single thing they read, they go, I'm so glad that's in there, I'm so glad about every single thing they read in the Bible. I've seen people gloss over some things and pretend they aren't even there. I've seen them poorly argue away the meanings of things. And so we ignore it oftentimes if we don't want this authority. Most of the people that came and followed Jesus eventually left him. Over the thousands and thousands of people that came to be healed and to be fed and to experience Jesus and hear his teaching, the majority of those people would just ultimately leave. They would walk away probably having taken something that they liked, but never actually being willing to follow him with everything in their life. Or we argue with it, we fight with it. That's what the Pharisees do. Now, the Pharisees get a tough break. But I, I honestly think what they do is better than what the people do who walk away. Because at least they keep arguing and keep wrestling with it. 
Because I think that's what we're called to do. We're called to wrestle with the things that aren't easy for us to take. Here's how you know if Jesus or if the Father, through his word, in his teaching, if they have authority in your life. Here's how you know. It is the easiest test in the world. You ready? Here's how you know. Because at some point, you're going to come across something, and you're really not going to like it, and it's going to be really difficult, and you're going to have to decide what you do then. You're going to go, I really don't want to do that. I really don't want the Bible to say that. I really, that does not work for me. If you've never felt that way, Bible probably doesn't have authority in your life. Jesus probably doesn't have authority in your life. You're probably just reading everything going, eh, whatever, I don't know. I don't want to think too much about it. But if you run into something like a brick wall and you say, I have got to correct my course in some way. I've got to wrestle now with this thing. I've got to wrestle with it. And wrestling is exhausting. It's depleting. It's, it's sometimes even discouraging. If you've never done that, then it probably doesn't carry authority. If, the, if Jesus does carry authority in your life, then you're going to live the way that the disciples lived, which they were constantly having to reevaluate their own hearts and their own values rather than say, I love the Bible because it represents all the things that I really like. AKA, I'm not sinful or bad or part of the problem. I'm part of the solution, and I always have been. What if the authority of God, what if, what, what if Jesus actually dictated your priorities, your values, your ideas of what's good and what's bad? This is the question for, for us. What is the authority in your life? What is the authority? What is the thing that dictates your priorities? What is the thing that dictates what's good or bad? What is the thing that dictates what you love and what you hate, what you care about, what breaks your heart, what makes you angry, unsettled, frustrated in the world? What is it that dictates those things? Is it Jesus? Is it the Father? Is it your creator? Or is it something else? Jesus is making the single biggest claim that a person could ever make. He is saying he should be the ruler over you. That's a pretty big statement to make. He's saying, I know you better than you do. I know them better than you do. And most importantly, I know the Father better than you do. So trust me and listen to my words. And believe it or not, the Pharisees are not too excited to hear him say this. So far, the defense is not winning them over, I think. So he goes on. And if we... He says, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So if what he said before was nuts to the ears of the people listening. This, believe it or not, is even harder to
to hear because what Jesus has just said, if you go back right at the very beginning, he said the Father, this is God, judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is saying, I will judge you. So again, this is great, right? You got a a little trial going on. You got your people accusing Jesus. First response, I'm basically God. Second response, you're not the judge. I'm the judge, right? I'm not on trial. You're all on trial. I'm not out of order. This whole courtroom is out of order. This is like some scene from a bad movie where Jesus is just running around throwing accusations at everybody and they're just going, okay, uh, maybe we'll just back off or something. He is totally flipping this thing around on these people and he is saying, you all think that I'm yours to judge. You think God made you the expert to judge me. I am going to judge all of you one day. And then he talks about eternal life and eternal death and he says, I'm not just going to judge you. That judgment is going to mean life or death for you. I will judge you and it will be the only judgment that ever matters. It will be the one that says whether you will have eternal life or whether you will, whether you will experience eternal death. Even God has left it to me to judge. Why does he say that? He's probably saying that because he's going to determine the terms of righteousness. Jesus is going to die on the cross. Jesus is going to be what makes us righteous. And so Jesus is going to be the one to say, you're righteous because you know me not because you're such a great person. And if we didn't like the sound of authority, do we love the sound of judgment? Who doesn't love that word, right? Oh, what's that? I'll be judged. You'll be judged. We'll all be judged. Can I please go out and share the good news of that with the world? You'll be judged. We'll all be judged. And you will get death if you are not judged well. I, in the same way that I don't know many people who naturally are just attracted to the authority of God, I, I don't know many people that I like who are attracted to the idea of God's judgment. Oh man, I can't wait for judgment. Oh, God will judge the world. He'll judge you. Why, right? Because you need to get judged. I got to care of myself. I'm doing pretty good, right? But this world is a mess. You're a mess. And I cannot wait for the judgment of God to show you just who's on the right side of things. I don't really like being around people who like this idea of judgment. So, and we think as a culture, like, oh my gosh, like, why would I, why would, why, how would we ever be able to even talk about this idea that God judges all of us? Well, it's simple. We live in a society in which we believe things are true and they are right so firmly that we insist that other people not believe the opposite. And as much as we want to say we're okay with them believing different, yeah, you can believe different, but I won't shop at your store. I won't give you a dime. I won't support anyone who believes in what you're talking about. I I don't see any validity in you or anything that you stand for, but that's fine. You can believe what you want. That sounds like somebody who believes with quite a bit of certainty that what they hold true is right. That it is the way things ought to be. 
You see, the people who get mad about someone eating a Chick-fil-A on Gay Pride Month are getting mad because they believe that one group of people is being valued over another. They believe that, that one group of people is being treated as less and another group is being treated as better. And that makes them upset and that makes them angry. And so they react in the way they do. Just like people who get mad about how an NFL protest is handled are upset that somebody would take profits financially over conviction, over what they believe should quite literally be stood up for, that people would say, oh no, not in this instance. Because there's other things that matter more, like people being offended or things like that. The root of these things is that we believe something so, so passionately that to us, the only thing worse than the idea of a God who judges is a God who doesn't care about what is actually true and what is actually right. The idea that there is a God who says, nah, I don't, I don't really care, that's fine, whatever. Why do we feel this way? Why did living in a postmodern world last for all of like eight seconds of humanity? Because we know that there is something that is true, that there is a way things ought to be. In fact, it really, really bothers us that we might ever be forced to live in a world with people who believe the opposite of the way things really ought to be, that our kids will have to grow up being influenced by people who believe differently than the way things ought to be. We believe that there's a way that things ought to be. And so, this idea that God will judge, that Jesus judges, matters. It matters because he is ultimately one who says, I care about what is good and what is evil. I care about the wrongs that have been committed against you way more than you ever could. I care about the things that have been done to your children and to your children's children that will be done and the things that have been done to your grandparents just as much as I care about the things that were done to your enemies. Just as much as I care about the things that were done to the people who did those things to you. But I also care about the things that you've done. I care about the things that you believe, and I care about the places that your heart has been and what you've given yourself over to. I care about all the times that you acted like you really gave me authority over you in your life, and you didn't. You just slapped my name on things that you already agreed with. Jesus says, I will judge. And the good news of this is that we have a God who cares about what's actually good. He cares so much that he isn't willing to redefine it. He isn't willing to lower the standard of that thing. How much does he care about it that he lets his son die for it so that we could have him? And he says, those who have done good will experience the resurrection of life. They will have real, true life. And those who have done evil, the resurrection of judgment, they will have death. They will not have God. Jesus is saying to these people that are listening to him who have accused him of blasphemy, he is saying, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether it works in your worldview or not, whether it sits well with you, probably shouldn't sit well with you or not, I speak on behalf of God because I am God. And what I say to you matters and is true, even if you don't believe it. 
even if nobody ends up believing it, it's still true because I made you. And what he says to us is he says, any other authority in your life other than me will lead you to death. And so when you run into that brick wall and you begin that wrestling match, why do you keep going? Why do you keep pushing? Even though it's hard and it's painful and you don't want someone else to be the authority in your life. Why? Because you know that that's the only way to life and that letting go and giving up is death. And he says, there will be judgment. And why does he say there will be judgment? It is in part to remind us that when we talk about being missionaries and as disciple makers, when we talk about reaching the lost, we're not saying that because we want more people to come to our church. We're not saying that because we want the, the, the world to be more filled with people like us so that it finally is the way that we want it to be. We're saying that because there's judgment that comes and that everyone is subject to that judgment. And so there is no better news than the news of the fact that we can have life and that we can be saved. That's why he tells us this. Let's pray. Father, I use these extreme, um, I draw these extreme lines because I have a hard time imagining a person who welcomes the idea of true authority, Lord. I didn't talk about it, but the truth is there are those of us who fight against your authority, and those, there are those who give in to any authority that promises to completely tell them how to live every step of their life. People, people give themselves over to all kinds of movements and cults and groups and things that say, I will literally tell you how to live and everything to do. But the idea is that if you do well enough, you will then find life. You'll earn life. You'll deserve life. Lord, you created us worthy of life. You created us in a state of having life with you, and we were worthy of it, and because of sin, we are no longer. Lord, help us as we worship you, as we praise you, to just desire for you to be the authority in our life. Not our parents, not our world, not our bosses, our spouses, or our kids, or our jobs, or our friends, or money, let you, we pray that you would be the authority in our lives, God. That you would help us wrestle through those things that don't sit naturally in our hearts and you conform us more to the image of Christ. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Father, as we sing about surrendering, we acknowledge that because you're a God of truth and of order, you created us to have conviction, to care passionately about things. And, as we talk about your authority and submitting to it, there's so much in us that wants to fight against that. God, give us the ability to recognize that we live in a world where we're fighting one another over what is right, what is true, and what is wrong. We're literally killing each other over what we believe is true and right, that even those who struggle to believe that you even exist have to acknowledge that we seem to believe that things ought to be a certain way. And when we're honest, we don't really know what that way is, God. And so when we sing about surrendering to you, about your authority, we're talking about giving in to the one who is the author of things, the one who shows us that he, his way is the only way to life. Lord, give us the ability to be driven to you, drawn to you, 
because of what we believe so passionately about, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.